All right. So, we are going to pick up where we left off last week. We've been in the series, Whatever Happened to the Power of God, examining where did God go. Now, we are in a situation right now as a church, seeing God work on behalf of a person. Physically ailed accident happened. How do we know that God is in this from the very beginning? From the idea of watching Him progress? We know by a couple of reasons. One, we're watching this expedited timeline. Okay, He was down and out. I've also noticed, and, and these guys can attest to this, there are times that we pray for something specific that was going on, and then immediately, he, that is the issue that gets better. He could not open his eyes last week. They were swollen. He couldn't, I mean, it hurt him to do that. And last Sunday, we specifically prayed, Lord, we thank you that you're taking the swelling out of his eyes so he can open them and function. And then I get a call that night, hey, he opened his eyes today. Well, of course he did. You know? Where he was been having some mental problems, you know, when you have a brain injury, things happen. Nothing bad. He just kind of goes off into some stories, and they're they are kind of funny. I'll be honest with you. But but that day when I left the hospital, I pray. I'm like, Lord, I thank you that you are strengthening his mind and bringing him back. The next day, she calls me. She's like, it's a 180 from what he was yesterday. And I'm like, well, of course it was, because we went to God in prayer. You see, the power of God we are watching take place right now. And the thing is, is we watch it take place daily. We don't recognize it. We don't recognize it for what it is. We don't recognize it because sometimes it comes in packages that we don't expect it to. We watch God move on behalf of people. You know, it's kind of the idea. If you guys remember the story about Elijah and Elisha, and, and they've got all these guys that are coming up around, and Elijah says, hey, Lord, open his eyes. And he opens his eyes to see into the spiritual realm, and there were angels wrapped all the way around him. You see, God was moving right there. He just couldn't see it. The same thing happens today. But as we've gone through this, we began to look at what happened to the power of God. Because it seems that churches today worship a victim. I wouldn't say fictitious God, but a God that does not have His hand moving upon His people. That we worship Him as some sort of a ceremony. We worship Him as a part of a duty that we have to Him. And none of those things are really true. Because there aren't religious ceremonies that bring you closer to God. We're trying to perform something to please God, but yet God says that our works are but filthy rags unto Him. What pleases God is our heart. It's always been the heart. When you look at the Old Testament and the law, they were supposed to keep the commandments and do all of these things. And they did that. But Moses said, yeah, you've circumcised your flesh, but your hearts are far from God. You see that addressed in the New Testament as well. Yeah, you're going through the motions. You're doing all the stuff right. But your heart is a long way from it. You've seen it in your own lives. You've seen it with your children, right? Wouldn't you just love that if your kids just woke up one day and said, I cleaned my room, Mom, because I wanted it clean. Right. I know, it's, it's like a unicorn. They don't exist. But I'm just saying, could you imagine if that was the case? That they woke up because their heart was, I want a clean room. Now, you can drop the hammer on them, and that room will get clean. But what do you hear in the other room? Stomping, throwing, stuffing, right? Wherever they can cram the stuff, they're going to cram the stuff and hope you don't find it. Right? It's kind of like the idea. It's, it's, let's use Valentine's Day as an example. As you guys know, I'm opposed to all things that are Hallmark holidays. Right? If, out of my heart, I send my wife flowers on any other day of the year, right? it might mean something because I've chosen. Now, I'll probably get chewed out because she'd be like, why are you wasting money on something that's going to die in three days? Yeah, it doesn't happen. That's why. 
She, well, okay, fine. We'll use chocolate. Fine, fine. I send her a 12-pound peanut butter cup. But it's expected of me on Valentine's Day, is it not? So therefore, am I doing it? Am I really expressing a love or am I doing it because it's expected of me? I'm acting out of an expectation. Thus, it's meaningless, right? I'm going to take down the, the greeting card industry one sermon at a time. But you get my point. Is that we do things what we think is pleasing God, that God wants us to do, but yet all He really wants is our heart. You know, I, as you guys know, I've owned businesses through the years and I've had employees. There's a difference from an employee who meant to do well and screwed up versus somebody who just didn't care and didn't care what the outcome was. I can deal with somebody making mistakes. If they're trying their hardest, we can address those issues. I've never in all my life, I've had multiple employees through the years, I've never in all my life fired anybody who meant well and just messed up. Or the idea was well-intended, it just wasn't a good idea. That happens, right? Happens to you, it happens to me. I know you're shocked to hear that. I do once in a while come up with a dumb idea. It's very, very rare, but it does happen. You see, the thing is, is it's the intention of the heart. So if the intention of the heart of God is to have somebody who loves Him and worships Him as a result of who they are versus out of a servitude, mindset. He says that you are no longer slaves, but you are friends of God. Friends, you choose your friends, but if you're a slave, you didn't make that decision. That's the thing that we're missing. When we're searching for what happened to the power of God, we've served God with our flesh. We've gone to church, we sing the songs, we've given the off, we do those things, but that's really not what he's after. He says God loves a cheerful giver, right? Don't give out of necessity or begrudgingly because God loves a cheerful giver. It's like, I'm doing this because I want to, because I love God, I believe in His provision, and I'm putting my faith in Him, and I believe in the work and the ministry that He's put me here as a part of. Therefore, I give. When there's opportunities to give in the situation we've got right now. Last week, you guys all stepped up. Everybody was throwing, here's a few bucks. I got this on me. Take that up to Leslie. I said, Paul and Sherry delivered the card. Uh, there's Paul. Hey, he's back there. I knew you moved seats today. Okay. His wife's not in here, so he was confused. He didn't know where to go, so she couldn't direct him. But, but they took the card up there, and she calls me that night, and she's like, you don't know what a blessing this was. Can you imagine having to drive from Nebraska City Lincoln every single day? You're eating out meals and you're, you're paying for stuff you don't normally pay for. And you still have, it, it may not seem like much, but we all came in together. We all helped out. Praise the Lord. God gets the glory, right? And why did we do that? Because we love God and we love them. And they're part of our body and they're hurting right now. We're going to step up. It's kind of like when you stub that pinky toe, right? What do you do? The rest of your body adapts because you walk more gingerly. That's what we're doing right now with them. We do it not because we have to. It's because we want to. Does that mean that some of us are going to make a sacrifice? Maybe we're going to eat out a little less here over the next couple of months as we give more to them to help them out. There are so many in this room that are willing to do just that. Not maybe, maybe make a few sacrifices. Why? Because we are the body. We don't do it because we have to. We do it because we love God and we love them. That's what the heart of God is, is we love Him, therefore we do. The heart of God is, I love you, therefore I did. While we were still sinners, while you were enemies of God, I sent my Son into the world to pay the price that you might be able to become the sons of God, if you choose to. So what happened to the power of God? He's still here. He's still moving. We've changed. He has not. So why don't we see the things happen in the Bible? The healing. And that's what we've been mainly focused on. The power of God to heal. 
The question is, and has been over the last few weeks, does God heal today? If you remember, I wrote up on the board, there's the idea of cessationism, that the gifts of the Spirit and God healing people has no longer happened. Yes, it happened during the Bible times, but it had a purpose. It was a purpose to confirm the message of the apostles that these people would know that they were sent by God. It was out of result because there were other signs that happened that weren't signs of God. There was a supernatural world that took place back then. It, you can see it in Egypt when Moses goes in there and he throws down a staff, it turns into serpents. What happens? The, the sorcerers that were there, part of the Egyptian uh, army, I guess, did the exact same thing. So there was stuff that always went on. They worshipped all these false gods. So yes, it did confirm the message. But once that message was gl- delivered and written down, in other words, what we call the Bible, did they stop? Not according to Scripture. According to Scripture, those things will continue on forever. And we saw that. Then we get the idea, and we've stepped into this part, is that is it God's will to heal? Because what we'll say or what we'll see is that sometimes it's God's will to heal, and other times it's not God's will to heal. We don't know what it is. We just trust in His sovereignty. Is God sovereign? Yes. And as a part of that sovereignty, He has given us the ability to choose or reject Him. That's part of his sovereign attitude. If he didn't, and we were discussing this this morning, as a matter of fact, if God did not give you the ability to choose or reject him, then there was no choice to have. Therefore, you don't love him because you want to. You love him because you have to. You have to send card on Valentine's Day. Because if I don't, mama ain't going to be happy. You see, we express worship to God. There's no commandment you've got to come to church. It says you should. There's no commandment that you've got to give. It says you should. There's no commandment that you should worship God, but you said you should. There's no commandment that you should pray, but it says you should. There's no commandment that you have to go lay hands on the sick, but it says you should. All of these things that we should do, that we bring to the table, and in this case, we can see the power of God move. So is it God's will to heal? That's what we began to look at. Is it sometimes His will, or is it always His will? And so today, as we get into this, let's look at Psalm 103 again. Verse 1, it says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless His holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all His benefits. He forgives all your iniquities. He heals all your diseases. He redeems your life from destruction. He crowns you with loving kindness and tender mercies. He satisfies your mouth with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. Why did David write this? Because these are the benefits of being a child of God. You see, they were underneath of a covenant that they chose to enter into with God called the Old Covenant, called the Mosaic Covenant, whatever you want to call it. And with that, he says, now listen, if you obey my commandments and serve me and me alone, you will do well. And if you don't, you will be cursed. And what do you guys want to do? They said, yeah, we want in on that. They screwed it up. But the benefits of God never changed. You see, those people are always underneath of that covenant. But in order to enter into the benefits of that covenant, they had to meet a certain criteria. And even if they got away from them, they could always come back because the benefits were always there. They never changed. So in other words, God did not stop healing. He didn't stop forgiving. He didn't stop redeeming. He didn't stop crowning. He didn't stop satisfying. They walked away from it. All they had to do was come back. Now let's bring that to today. We have a God that has not changed. He healed in the Scriptures. He heals today. He saved in the Scriptures. He saves today. Nothing has changed. Our response to God is what has changed. 
So we begin to look at the Word and say, okay, based off of what we see, as we've talked about, your theology is so influenced by the things that have happened in your life or the things that you've heard before. That's where these ideas come from. It's taught in seminaries that God doesn't move today. The gifts of the Spirit have ceased to operate. God doesn't heal. So what do you leave believing? God doesn't heal. God doesn't move. These gifts have ceased. You get into another seminary and they'll say, yep, sometimes God does if it's His will. And yet Jesus said, Lord, let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And how can we pray that if we don't know it? We've got this basically spiritual lottery we play like, I sure hope it's God's will to heal this time. And why have we done that? Because sometimes people get healed and sometimes they don't. Thus, it must be based off of His will. Whether He wanted them healed or not. Just like some people get saved and some people don't. Some people give their life to Christ, some people don't. The message is the same, the response is always different. Therefore, it must be because God's will was for them to be healed and for them not to be healed. Or for them to be saved or for them not to be saved. Whatever the case may be. And I keep using those two analogies because we are going somewhere with that idea. Is salvation and healing in the same breath? Are they interchangeable? And we will begin to look at that a little bit today, but more in the coming weeks. So let's look at this. We looked at Scripture last week, and I've talked about this, and I wanted to teach on it again, about the four Messianic miracles. And these are what they were. The cleansing of a leper, the casting out of a deaf and dumb spirit, the healing of a birth defect, in other words, they're blind from birth, they couldn't walk from birth, and the raising of the dead after three days. So let me explain these. We see these stories in Scripture, but what the Jewish people believed is that when the Messiah came, the Messiah, or God, in other words, would perform these things. Because the cleansing of a leper, remember, they believed that leprosy was given by God. I showed you some passages in the Old Testament. That they believed that it was the finger of God that gave that to them, and therefore only God Himself could cleanse a leper. And then, of course, the casting out of a deaf and dumb spirit. They believed that, and they performed exorcism, the Jews did, that in order to exercise that demon, that they had to get the name of it so they knew what they were addressing. But if it made the individual unable to speak or unable to hear, they couldn't get the name out, and therefore they could not cast it out. Jesus followed that pattern once with legion. Remember that we are many, we are legion. And then he uh, went this pattern here after that. Proving, again, they were a, he was the Messiah. The healing of the birth defects, blind from birth. We see that story where the Pharisees are grilling him. Are you sure that you've been born blind? Calls in his parents. You know, he says he's been born blind. Was he really? How can this man do this? He's a sinner. And the guy's like, listen, I don't know whether he's a sinner or not. All I know is that only God could do this, and he did this, and God would not hear from a sinner. You see, they didn't believe that. Uh, they believed that if you were born with some sort of a birth defect, you were born because of the sin of your parents or sin in your own life, and therefore it was from God. The last thing is raising the dead after three days. They believed that the spirit of the individual stayed with the body for three days, but on the fourth day or thereafter, that uh, the spirit would leave the body and the body itself was too decomposed, therefore it could not be uh, resurrected. And so, again, we see all these. We see Jesus do that with Lazarus. And you watch in scriptures that it was four days. Specifically four days. He told his disciples, listen, it's better for you that I have waited so that you may see and believe. What I'm showing you is that there was an expectation of God in this. What would happen when an individual would perform any of these miracles is they would report it to the Sanhedrin, which is like the Supreme Court of the land. It was made up of the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Essenes, the Herodians. There was a little bit of everybody, but the Pharisees were in charge. 
And so they would report and say, hey, somebody performed this messianic miracle. So they would go in there and they begin to investigate it and they would just sit back and observe. And then eventually they would go into the interrogation phase where they start asking him questions. And that is why the Pharisees were all around. You guys with me on that? I want to make sure you're up to speed there. I think we all understand that. But that is what was happening. It wasn't just abstract miracles. Jesus walking down the road and he said, hey, blind guy. Hey, here's some mud. Go wash that off. You'll be fine. This was all orchestrated by God. And it was an expectation that the Messiah would perform in a certain way. Right? It wasn't a question as if, I don't know if the Messiah will do this. They knew that He could. They also knew that He would. Those are two very big statements. I want to look at another example of this today. It's something that we often read and we kind of glaze through it. And then because this thing has been preached so many times that we don't dig into it to see what on earth is going on behind the story. The context is everything. So let's start in Matthew chapter 9 and verse 20. This is a story you guys know. And suddenly, a woman had a flow of blood for 12 years. She came from behind and touched the hem of his garment. For she said to herself, If only I may touch his garment, I shall be made well. But Jesus turned around, and when he saw her, he said, Be of good cheer, daughter. Your faith has made you well. And the woman was made well from that hour. Isn't that a great story? This thing has been preached to death. This woman had a flow of blood. I think you all know what that was, right? She had that time of the month for 12 years. Nobody needs that. We'll see later that she's gone to the doctor, she spent everything she had. But she knew that she put her faith out there. because She had such great faith that if I could just get in there just a little bit, just touch just any part of Jesus, even the littlest aspect, the hem of His garment, I could be made whole. And Jesus said, it's because of your great faith that you were made whole. That thing has been preached and then they'll come up with something like, where are you at in your faith? You believe if you just simply touch the hem of the garment that you would be made well in all of that? Do you believe that if you just come to Jesus today that you can be made whole? We preach these things and we never stop to ask the question, where did she come up with this idea? Can we all agree that that's very random? Why not the hair on his head? If I could simply stroke his beard. What if she gave Jesus a wet willy? I mean, what, why not anything else besides touch the hem of His garment? Because there is a cultural thing that is going on here that we always overlook. And we have to be students of Scriptures if we're going to understand it. Because the story that is preached and the story that's behind the curtain are not the same. And the one behind the curtain is so much more powerful. So let's look into this. First of all, we've got to see why this was a big deal. Why was this such a big deal that she pressed through the crowd and did all of this? We have to go back to the Levitical law. Remember, at this time, they are underneath the Old Testament law. They have to perform in a certain way. Remember the lepers, when we talked about that last week? They had to stay away from everybody else. They had to be cast aside. And they, if anybody came near, they have to yell, I'm unclean, I'm unclean. Because if they came in contact with the lepers physically, they would become unclean, ceremonial, I should say, not physically, ceremonially unclean, and they would have to go in mikvah and go through a series of things to become ritually cleansed again to go into the tabernacle or the temple, depending on the time frame. It was all about a worship to God and doing that. So, in Leviticus chapter 15, 
we get the commandment of what a woman is supposed to do. We're going to start in verse 19. If a woman has a discharge, and the discharge from her body is blood, she shall be set apart for seven days. And whoever touches her shall be unclean until evening. Everything that she lies on during her impurity shall be unclean. Also, everything that she sits on shall be unclean. Whoever touches her bed shall wash his clothes and bathe in water and be unclean until evening. And whoever touches anything that she sat on shall wash his clothes and bathe in water and be unclean until evening evening if anything is on her bed or anything on which she sits when he touches it he shall be unclean until evening and if any man lies with her at all so that her impurity is on him he shall be unclean seven days and every bed on which he lies shall be unclean kind of like there's a whole lot of steps that you have to go through here if a woman has a discharge of blood for many days other than at the time of her customary impurity, or if it runs beyond her usual time of impurity, all the days of her unclean discharge shall be as the days of her or customary impurity. She shall be unclean. Every bed on which she lies all the days of her discharge shall be to her as the bed of impurity, and whatever she sits on shall be unclean as the uncleanness of your impurity. Whoever touches those things shall be unclean. He shall wash his clothes and bathe in water and be unclean until evening. But if she is cleansed of her discharge, then she shall count for herself seven days, and after that she shall be clean. And on the eighth day she shall take for herself two turtle doves and two young pinches and bring them to the priest to the door of the tabernacle of meeting. And the priest shall offer the one as a sin offering and the other as a burnt offering. And the priest shall make atonement. I want you to remember that word. We'll come back to that. For her before the Lord for the discharge of her uncleanness. Thus you shall se separate the children of Israel from their uncleanness, lest they die in their uncleanness when they defile my tabernacle that is among them. That, this is the law for one who has a discharge for him who emits semen is unclean thereby, and for her who is indisposed because of her customary impurity, and for one who has a discharge either man or woman, for him who lies with her who is unclean. Okay, that was a mouthful, and we're not going to break this down, but y'all get the thing. I mean, the bottom line is this was a serious thing that they took incredibly serious. And it all had to do with entering into the tabernacle. Remember what they did. They would have to bring a sacrifice, bring a, an offering to the Lord. In this case, it says two turtle doves and two pigeons. They bring them. The priest was sacrificing them on the eighth day. They would make them ceremonially cleansed. Therefore, they could come back in. Thank God we don't have to deal with that kind of stuff today. Remember Jesus, our, our great high priest, who was the perfect offer and offering that's taking care of all this. This had a physical aspect and also a ceremonial aspect because we're dealing with blood. Remember what it says, that the life is in the blood. This is all going back to that. Now, when we look at this, this is what's going on. This is why she has to press through. Because think about it, every person that she touched is now unclean, including Jesus. This is a big deal. And that's why her faith was so great, right? That she was willing to risk it all to get in there to get what she needed from Jesus. Except that's not what's going on. So let's look at this in a couple other places. This story is in Matthew and Mark and Luke. So Mark chapter 5, starting in verse 25, says, Now a certain woman had a flow of blood for twelve years and has suffered many things from many physicians. She spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. So I don't know what she suffered from many physicians, but it talks about many things and many of them. She'd gone, spent everything she had trying to solve this problem and getting nowhere. When she heard about Jesus, she came behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if only I may touch his clothes, I shall be made well. Immediately the fountain of her blood was dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of the affliction. And Jesus, immediately knowing in himself that power had gone out out of him, turned around in the crowd and said, who touched my clothes? But his disciples said to him, you see the multitude thronging you and you say, who touched me? And he looked around to see her who had done this thing, but the woman, fearing and trembling. Why was she fearing and trembling? Because she knew she had done wrong. 
knowing what had happened to her, came and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. So we get a few more details here, right? We get the idea of the physicians. We get the idea she spent everything. We get the idea that she was afraid after having done this because she knew that she had disobeyed the commandments here. Let's look at Luke chapter 8, verse 41. And behold, there came a man named Jairus, and he was a ruler of the synagogue, and he fell down at Jesus' feet and begged him to come to his house, for he had had only one daughter about 12 years of age, and she was dying. But as he went, the multitudes thronged him. And now a woman, having a flow of blood for 12 years, who spent all her livelihood on physicians and could not be healed by any, came from behind and touched the border of his garment. And immediately her flow of blood stopped. And Jesus said, Who touched me? When all denied it, Peter and those with him said, Master, the multitude throng impress you. And you say, Who touched me? But Jesus said, Somebody touched me, for I perceive power going out from me. Now when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him. She declared to him in the presence of all the people that reason she had touched him and how she was healed immediately. And he said to her, Daughter, be of good cheer. Your faith has made you well. Go in peace. So another detail is Jesus is asking around, guys, who did this and what happens? Everybody denied it. I didn't touch you. I didn't touch you. It wasn't me. It was somebody else. And she finally came trembling and fell down before him and just declared, this is what I've done, but this is the result. So, so far we see this in all three Gospels, but not only that, but here's what's interesting, and this is often where we stop, is that this isn't the only time that this has happened. Because this happens, again, you see it in Mark chapter 6 and verse 53. When they had crossed over, they came to the land of the Gennesaret and anchored there. And when they come out of the boat, immediately the people recognized him, ran through the whole surrounding region, and began to carry about on beds those who were sick uh, to wherever they heard he was. Wherever he entered into the village of cities or country, they laid the sick in the marketplace and begged him that they might just touch the hem of his garment. And as many as touched him were made well. What on earth is going on? Because now, everybody caught wind of this. Hey, that hem of his garment, that thing's got some magic power. All we got to do is touch it. Do we see people respond in that way? Absolutely. We see it all the time. People think they'll, they'll hear about these crystals. You guys remember the uh, magnetic bracelets they came out with a few years ago? I say a few years, it's probably been a decade now. And they were selling like hotcakes because they said, if you wear this, it gives you increased balance. It centers you more. And they would do these demonstrations as you walk through the mall. Maybe you've never experienced this. But they would put it on and they'd have you hold your arm. Or they wouldn't put it on. They'd have you hold your arm up. They'd push on it and you would tip over. And then they'd put the bracelet on and they'd push on your arm again and you would stand up. Like, you see how much this, this brass or this copper or this, you know, whatever. It was magnet or something. And so they would sell them like hotcakes. What they didn't talk about was the natural physiological response is that once you've experienced something in your body, you're now prepared for it the next time. So the same thing happens whether you wear the bracelet or not. What were they selling? Snake oil. Not essential oils. Snake oil. And people bought them. I had a friend of mine that was selling them. He made a lot of money selling them. He says, Chris, you ought to be selling these too. I said, I sell stuff that's legit. That works, not this stuff. He didn't like that. So what is going on here? We need to focus on the word, the hem of his garment. What is it about the hem of his garment? So let's look at this. The word for hem here is crapsaidin. Capsaid, no, I'm saying it wrong. Crapsaidin, something like that. Look at all these different meanings of it. I don't know if everybody can see this. 
You see the corners, ends, edge, each other. Each one has six wings. There's different verses of that. But you see the primary use of it here is wing, winged, wings. That's the primary use of that word in the Greek. You see it in the Septuagint used that way often. It's very often translated that. In this case, it was translated him. So what is going on? What is the him? What is it talking about? Well, in order to understand this, we need to know what they were wearing. And so to do that, we need to go back to Numbers chapter 15. In verse 37, it says this, Again the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, tell them to make tassels on the corners of their garments throughout their generation, and to put a blue thread in the tassels of the corner, and you shall have the tassel, that you may look upon it, and remember all the commandments of the Lord to do them, that you may not follow the harlotry to which your own heart and your own eyes are inclined, that you may remember and do all my commandments, and be holy for your God. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord your God. So what they were commanded to do was to wear a garment, and on this garment they would have on the corners of it these tassels that were uh, uh, tied. And I have something similar to that today. Now, this changed from what they wore back then, because they used to wear it on the garment. Then they became, uh, started wearing these things called talis. This is a talit. You'll see here, it's very big. It's also called a prayer shawl. You'll see Jewish guys, uh, Jewish guys wear this all the time. You'll see that each corner has a tassel. It's made up of eight threads. It's got five knots in it. You see the blue that's going through the middle of it. And so they would have these on the bottom of their garments. Now, how do we know that? Well, we see an example of that. Remember when David ran into Saul in the cave, and what did he do? He snuck up behind him, and he cut the corner of his garment, cut the hem. He cut the tassel off. This was the authority as the king. They took this stuff ser seriously. You'll see guys today that wear what they call zitzits, uh, which is basically what this is, but instead of being on this prayer shawl, they'll have them attached here. And what they're to do, they're to remember to, to keep the commandments. And what this is, it's part of the gematria. So the word zitzit, when you add up the gematria, is the, every letter in the Hebrew alphabet corresponds with a number. So when you add up uh, the numbers of the word zitzit in Hebrew, which is not T-Z-I-T, T-Z-I-T, it's like different letters and stuff because it's Hebrew. That's how we say it. Um, it comes to the number 600. Then you've got the eight strings and the five knots, which is 13, for you math majors out there. So we add that together, what do we have? 613. How many commandments were there in the Old Testament? 613. That's why they had it. So today you would see somebody wear it. They would wear this like so. They would put it over their shoulders. When it talks about in the New Testament that they were to go into their prayer closet, this is their prayer closet. They believed that when they were in here and praying to God that nothing bad could get in and they were protected. They would wear it over the head. You see this. So I mean, watch it on TV. You'll see them wear it all the time. There are guys that wear this stuff today when they preach because they think it makes them look cool or gives them more authority or whatever. Okay? I apparently need a little bigger size to wrap it all the way around me, but whatever. You know, this is what was going on. It was these commandments that they were to remember and whatnot. Now, when we look at this and we see this, we see what's going on. You know, the talit here is what used today. It was a different garment back then. But the same idea is why would be touching this have anything to do with anything? Can we just put our faith in this inanimate object that it will heal us? We see ideas where they cut up Paul's aprons and they sent them out and whoever had them were healed. That the power of God resided in something fabric. Sure. I mean, that stuff happens. But what gave her the idea? She's kind of first in the market on it. She didn't wake up one day and say, boy, if I could just go grab them strings and them knots. Is it her faith 
in this or is there something greater going on? Obviously, there's something greater going on because I wouldn't be telling you this. You see, this here has no power in it whatsoever. But what do we say that we put our faith in? We put our faith in God. And how do we know about God? Through the Word of God. And these people would sit in synagogue every single, every single week, sometimes multiple times a week, and they would hear the Word of God spoke. And then to understand this, and that same uh, Greek word that's used there, we need to go over to Malachi chapter 4. And it says this in verse 2, But to you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall arise with healing in his wings, and he shall go out and grow fat like stall-fed calves. The Son of Righteousness is a title of Messiah, and in this case, Jesus specifically. But healing in his wings, you remember what I told you that that word also means and is used primarily? It's the same thing. You see, the prophet Malachi says that when the Son of Righteousness comes, He will have healing in His wings. She knew the Word. She knew that the promise of God was that when the Messiah was here, if all I could do is touch the hem of His garment, I will be made whole. This wasn't an abstract idea. And it wasn't faith in the garment. It was faith that Malachi the prophet, what he said was true, and that my God will deliver. You guys see how important it is? Number one, how important the Word is. This is why it's so crucial. We have to understand that. But more importantly, it wasn't this, this abstract idea that she came up with. It was a promise of God. When he says, so often I wanted to bring you in like a chicken and, and, and brood over you and take you under my wings, it's the same thing. It's the same exact word that's used there. You see, it was a promise that healing would be in his wings. This is where this comes from. You guys see why the context matters? Why this is important? So what does this have to do with anything? You see, we're looking at this is what does Scripture say from the standpoint of healing? Is it God's will to heal? Some will say that by reading this passage, like, well, in that case, it was God's will to heal. But is that what Malachi said? He said, the healing's there. You need to go and take it. And so when we look at this, we're going to go back to a word that we saw just a little bit ago. And it's very important that we understand this. Atonement. That's a word we don't use very often anymore. What does atonement mean? You guys remember when we read it earlier? Atonement simply means a covering. But a little more in-depth uh, thing is this. The reconciliation of God and humankind through Jesus Christ. When the lady was bleeding... And she would go and she would create the, the sacrifice and be away for seven days and stuff. When she would come to the priest, she would be called cleansed because her sin, in this case her uncleanness, we, we, we interchange those two words, but it's not the same thing, would now be atoned for. It would be covered. It would be taken care of. It's the reconciling of God and mankind through Jesus. Jesus is the great atoning sacrifice. Atonement is the central message of the Bible. That God has provided a way for mankind to come back to them. You see it at the very beginning in Genesis chapter 3, verse 21. Adam and Eve sinned, and what does God do? Also for Adam and his wife, the Lord God made tunics of skin, and He clothed them. He covered them. He made a sacrifice and covered their nakedness. 
But what were the people waiting for? They knew when Messiah came that all of these things would be healed. They didn't have to ask whether it was His will or not. They knew that because it was taught through Scripture from the very beginning of time. They knew all I have to do is go out there and take it. So, does the atonement and healing, do those two things run in conjunction with one another, or are they completely different subjects? That's what we need to begin to look at. Look at Mark chapter 10, verse 45. It says, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. That's the same word as atonement. He paid the price. Leviticus 17, verse 11. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement for the soul. So, what did He give to you? The blood to make atonement for your souls. The life of the flesh is in the blood. He's given that. Hebrews 9, verse, 20, or verse 16. For where there is a testament, there must also uh, of necessity be the death of a testator. For a testament is in force after men are dead, since it has no power at all while the testator lives. Therefore, not even the first covenant was dedicated without blood, referring to the, Moses, the covenant of Moses. For when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and goats with water, scarlet wool, and hyssop, and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you. Then likewise he sprinkled the, uh, with blood both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry. And according to the law, almost all things are purified with blood. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. It's the same Thing, remission atonement, one and the same. Matthew chapter 26, verse 28, For this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remissions of sin. The life is in the blood. The blood was given to you to make a covering for you. Ephesians 1, verse 7, In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sin, according to the riches of His grace. How do we have redemption? Well, we know it's through His blood. And what was it for? The forgiveness of sin. Now, He has now taken and covered those and taken them away. Colossians 1, verse 13, He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of His Son of His love, in whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sin. Redemption, forgiveness, one in the same, used interchangeably. Colossians 1, verse 19, For it pleases the Father that in Him all the fullness should dwell, and by Him to reconcile all things to Himself, by Him whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of His cross. It was the blood of Jesus that was the atoning sacrifice for all of mankind. Now, when the Messiah came, there was an expectation that He was going to perform in a certain way, and in doing so, it would be confidence and, and, and make a confirmation that he truly was the Messiah. Messiah came, he confirmed with the signs following, proving that he was who he said he was. What was the ultimate sign that he gave? The sign of Jonah. That he would be in the grave for three days and he would come out. It's the ultimate sign. Then we see the sign of the Messiah going on after that. In Acts chapter 2, the giving of the Holy Spirit. And then we never see an example where somebody is prayed for to be made well that they were not. So it comes down to question this. Was the atoning sacrifice that Jesus made that makes us right with God, that covers our sins, that forgives our sins, in that atoning sacrifice, is there an expectation to be physically healed at the same time? 
That is the question we have to ask. Because that is where the great debate lies. You see, if it's sometimes God's will to heal and sometimes not, then we come to two conclusions. A, that we could, we'd make the same argument that it either sometimes it's will to save and sometimes it's not, number one. Right? And that's some belief. Some believe that some people are saved and some people God has chosen to damn to hell. The other idea of that is that we can have no confident expectation how God is going to move in any scenario. That's where the idea that God works in mysterious ways. So, those two things get used interchangeably and they have the same result. The other idea is, is that if God doesn't heal today, does He still save today? Well, we have to say yes. Because otherwise, what would we be doing? We'd be wasting our time. But if we say yes, then we have to look at the same works that Jesus did and say, okay, are those two things used interchangeably? You see, the question that is argued is healing in the atoning sacrifice. If it is, then it is God's will for all to be healed, just like it is God's will for all to be saved. If it's not, then we don't know and God may move in a different way. We are going to begin to start looking at this idea. And we're going to use Scripture. And nothing but Scripture. And we're going to look through this and say, okay. Because let's face it, guys. If it is God's will that all be made well, He's not doing a very good job of it. We have too much sickness going on. So let's just do, let's be students of the Word. And let's look at that and say, okay, God. Is this your will? Because let me tell you this. If I can convince you that it is God's will to heal and it was a part of Jesus' sacrifice and it is one of the benefits of it, shouldn't your faith be elevated to the point that I'm just as confident about healing as I am about salvation? We're very confident about salvation, but we're not about healing. And if those two things are tied together, we should either be more confident or begin to question our salvation based off what we see. We're going to go to the Word.